When was the last time that you went to see German stand-up comedy and had a great time? Mein Hund jagt immer Luten auf dem Fahrrad hinterher, bis ich ihm das Fahrrad wegnahm. <laughs> and everyone is laughing and you're sitting there having no idea what is being said. Everyone is laughing except you. You don't know what's funny because you don't know German, and it'd be a long night. And by the way, that is a real German joke. In English, my dog used to chase after people on a bike until I took away his bike. Come on. Well, Germans aren't known for their humor, especially if you don't know German. Besides the fact that you probably never had the opportunity to go see German stand-up comedy, if that's even a thing, I'd imagine that if you did have the opportunity, you wouldn't go. But see, the more German that you learn, the more you would be able to sit there and laugh and have a great time. Parables and divine truth are similar. Paul wrote to the believers in Corinth, we have received the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. That's an important truth. God graciously gives his spirit to his chosen people that they might understand what he freely gives to them. Paul continued, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The natural person is like you and me at a German comedy club. The natural person doesn't understand or have the capacity to understand parables and other spiritual truths. The gospel is taught by the spirit, and the Spirit interprets spiritual truths to those who are spiritual, to those who have received the Spirit. In today's text, Jesus presents the comforting and good doctrine of election. Jesus teaches that the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven are understood only when God sovereignly and graciously gives understanding. To truly know is a deep comfort for those who know because they know they know only by God's grace and spirit given them and receiving makes them thankful to know and ready to grow. The doctrine of election does trigger questions, but it's not meant to trouble your soul. Election is meant to comfort and assure your soul and lead you into deeper gratitude and obedience to God. My main point this morning is this. The Lord sovereignly and graciously gives his people understanding of the gospel. Therefore, rejoice that your eyes and ears have been opened to see and hear and bear much fruit because you see and hear. Today's passage requires careful thought. Next week, we'll unpack the parable of the sower, but today, we're going to try to understand why Jesus taught in parables to begin with. These are profound truths, so we really must hang on every word of Jesus so that we can leave here encouraged in our seeing and hearing. Let's begin here. 
the unexpected teaching method of Jesus. The unexpected teaching method of Jesus. Jesus had just taught that his closest and dearest kin are those who do the will of his Father in heaven. Jesus' true family are those who receive him by true faith and bear the fruit of faith, which is really obedience to the Father. Matthew transitions us into the third a major discourse of Jesus, which some call the parabolic discourse because Jesus teaches in parables. We'll get into the parable of the sower next week. Today is understanding why Jesus taught in parables. Verses 1 through 3 tell us, That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables. Jesus heads from the house to the Sea of Galilee. Matthew tells us, and he told them many things in parables. That's noteworthy. He taught the crowds big truths, massive truths, truths of the kingdom of heaven, but he taught them in cryptic parables. Now, parables are, are basic fictional stories that convey profound spiritual truths, allegories, if you will. There is a profound meaning hidden inside a parable that must be interpreted. That true meaning is the point of the story. And that true meaning is far from obvious. In fact, the only people who truly know the meaning are those who are given the right interpretation. Parables are not meant to be interpreted however anyone wants to interpret them. They have a true meaning. Why didn't Jesus teach with more obvious language? Didn't, didn't he want people to understand? And our text this morning helps us think through that. If you drop down to verses 34 and 35, you read this. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. And that's a quote from Psalm 78, verse 2. Jesus proclaimed the eternal mysteries of the gospel in parables and fulfilled that prophecy. God decreed from eternity to send his son to teach in parables. And Jesus' use of parables relates to two things, both to God's just judgment of unbelievers and God's grace given to his chosen people. First, let's think about parables in relation to God's just judgment. First, total depravity and God's just judgment. Total depravity and God's just judgment. Scripture teaches that human nature is totally depraved, or we could say entirely sinful. Romans 8 verse 7 says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It cannot. It is not able to submit. It is hostile to God. Human nature is hostile to God and incapable of submitting to God. Jesus said in verse 9, He who has ears, let him hear. And this means that some people have ears to hear and they hear. Other people do not have ears and therefore they do not hear. Jesus was talking about spiritual ears or the spiritual capacity to hear his teaching, understand it, and respond in sincere faith. Who has ears to hear? 
And how did they get the ears? Who doesn't have ears to hear and why don't they have ears? Didn't Jesus open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf? Scan over our text for this morning. The disciples have ears to hear because God chose them, gave them knowledge, and blessed them. The crowds, on the other hand, physically hear, but never spiritually understand because they don't have ears to hear. They physically see, but never spiritually perceive because they have shut their eyes. See, the human heart is dull, deaf, and rebellious. The natural person is blind and closes their eyes so that they don't see, hear, and understand. Sinners at enmity with God don't want to repent, nor do they want God's healing or forgiveness. They want to go their own way. Isn't it gracious, though, that Jesus proclaims the gospel even to those who persistently reject him? Isn't that grace and kindness? And doesn't persistent unbelief require God's just judgment? In verse 10, the disciples came to, to, and said to Jesus, why do you speak to them in parables? Well, apparently the disciples thought that Jesus should have been more immediately obvious, more clear and plain in his teaching. The crowds didn't understand the parable of the sower, which we'll get to next week. Mark and Luke tell us that the disciples heard and they didn't understand it either. Why wasn't Jesus plain? Why wasn't Jesus obvious? Why wasn't Jesus simple? Well, we find Jesus' answer in verses 11 through 15. In verse 11, Jesus says that to know the secrets, or we could say the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, has not been given to the crowds. Knowledge of the hidden mysteries of the kingdom of heaven is given by God to some and not to others. Sure, the crowds heard the words, but they couldn't know and didn't know because of their willful rejection of Jesus, the word of God. And we don't really see the crowds coming to Jesus sincerely asking for explanation. We do see the disciples come to him and they ask. Now, if we see the unbelieving crowds as innocent and well-intentioned people that God is preventing from understanding, well, then we're going to get into big theological trouble. We're not going to understand or be consistent with Scripture. But if we see those crowds as they truly were, as entirely corrupt human beings, blind to the truth, willfully rejecting Christ and refusing to come for Him for rest, then for God not to give them understanding is an act of his divine and just judgment, which is as good as his mercy and grace. No one attribute of God is greater than the others. Romans 9.18 is clear. God has mercy on whomever he wills, and God hardens whomever he wills. God's mercy and God's judgment equally glorify God. Now, you feel no obligation to give Christmas gifts to everyone in Mannheim. You don't feel guilty about that. You, you don't feel any guilt that you freely particularize your Christmas gifts. You're completely fine doing that. Even more, God is not obligated to give any sinner his forgiveness or his favor. 
God has no obligation whatsoever. So when Jesus tells his disciples, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given, it is not unfair. Because all deserve his righteous judgment, and for him to give mercy and grace to even one is infinite grace. For God to give to some and withhold from others reveals both divine grace and divine judgment, both equally good and glorifying to God. Parables, then, work to both glorify God's good judgment and glorify God's good grace. Now, brothers and sisters, for us to comprehend these profound truths by the Holy Spirit, we must celebrate God's holiness and justice as much as we celebrate his mercy and grace. We must worship God for all of his divine attributes. Why would we fault God for condemning people who taunt him and invite his judgment by their persistent unbelief and rejection of his beloved son? Why would we point the finger at God? Why would we wag the finger at God for his judgment? God is right and God is good to judge by withholding knowledge and understanding. In verse 12, Jesus says that from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Whatever knowledge the crowds had of God, they did not have knowledge of Christ. The knowledge received by grace through faith, they had not. And whatever knowledge of God in his kingdom they had, it was being stripped away. You might recognize the name Matthew Frazier. I looked him up this week. He earned the title of fittest man on earth four consecutive years at the CrossFit Games. We could say the man is just a beast. I mean, incredibly fit. What would happen to Matthew Frazier if he just stopped working out? He just started binge watching Netflix and eating tons of donuts. What would happen? Well, he'd lose the fitness that he currently had. He'd lose it. The crowds, they received the law and prophets to a certain point. They had knowledge of God to a certain point, but they did not receive the Christ of the law and prophets. They did not receive the knowledge and wisdom of God in Jesus the Christ. They had not. Therefore, even what they had, which stopped short of the gospel, was being taken away. They closed their eyes and ears and invited God's judgment by their willful and persistent unbelief. And Jesus explained to his disciples in verse 13, this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. This will become clear next week in the parable of the sower. Jesus was talking about people who continually refused to come to him in repentance and faith. Who was coming to him in repentance and faith? The people he chose and called to himself, his beloved disciples. Dr. Leon Morris commented, commitment to Jesus is the prerequisite for a true understanding of his parabolic teaching. If people rejected the Christ and set themselves in opposition to God, how could they understand the teaching that came from God through the Christ? Unquote. People don't understand divine truth until they submit to Christ. The crowds were seeing the kingdom of God advancing right in front of them, but they did not see it. They were blind. Jesus was teaching that the kingdom had come. He had inaugurated it in their midst. 
but they didn't hear because they were deaf. They simply did not understand because they had no eyes to see, had no ears to hear. Do you understand? You can take a blind person to an art gallery, but they will not be able to see the beauty of the art. You, you can take a deaf person to the symphony, but, but they will not be able to hear the marvelous sounds. They can't. They would need to be given sight and sound in order to hear and admire and appreciate the sight and sound and the beauty before them. Jesus gives us a big clue of how this happens when he opens the physical eyes of the blind and opens the ears of the deaf. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.3, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Veiled to those who are perishing. Now make no mistake, the gospel is clear. Scripture is clear. God has been completely clear and rational and lucid. People miss it, though, for various reasons that the Bible brings out. First, sin blinds people to the gospel. They willfully and stubbornly shut their eyes in their unrighteousness. Second, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan deceives many people, blinds them to the reality of the truth. What a, what a big lie and cheat. And third, God himself withholds knowledge and blinds their eyes so that they cannot see. These truths, they mysteriously work together. Listen closely to verses 14 and 15 where Jesus talks about the large crowds. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says. Now, right there, if we pause, that's the sovereignty of God at work. Uh, prophecy expresses God's eternal and divine decrees. That's why prophecy works, because God has a plan and a purpose, sovereign plan and purpose. Jesus then quotes Isaiah, you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive, for this people's heart has grown dull, and with their eyes they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Now, if we pause there, right there is human responsibility. And willful, obstinate, persistent rebellion against God. They closed their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Persistent unbelief makes the heart dull, makes the ears deaf, makes the eyes clamp shut. Unbelievers shut their eyes and ears so that they can't hear God. They don't want to understand. They don't want to repent. They don't want to receive healing and forgiveness from God. They don't desire God. Imagine a, a really frustrated mother reprimanding her stubborn little son, and he plugs his ears and he closes his eyes and he says, la, 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 la. And he does that because he just doesn't want to hear his mother. Doesn't want to hear what she has to say. Besides being spiritually blind and deaf, sinners naturally shut their eyes and ears to the gospel. They are not able to hear and understand. And this is all of us apart from Christ and his amazing grace. It's all of us apart from Christ. And yet, at the same time, verses 11 through 13 explain that God does not grant them knowledge 
He does not give knowledge to all, only to some. The entire text this morning is showing us two things. First, God's sovereign and gracious election to give knowledge to his chosen people. And second, God's sovereign and just judgment to withhold from totally depraved and rebellious humans true knowledge of the gospel. Their blindness and deafness are part of God's eternal decrees. God's sovereignty and human responsibility are coexistent truths and are not in any way contradictory. Dr. D.A. Carson rightly explains, biblical writers in both the Old Testament and the New Testament have, on the whole, fewer problems about the tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility than do many moderns. This is not because they fail to distinguish purpose and consequence, as many affirm, but because they do not see divine sovereignty and human responsibility as antitheses. In short, they are compatibilists and therefore juxtapose the two themes with little self-conscious awareness of any problem. So what that's saying is I think many today find that those two things are pit against each other, but the Bible just doesn't do that. It presents both divine sovereignty and human responsibility, and they are not conflicting truths. We must be careful not to set God's sovereignty against man's responsibility. So let's say a blind person stands in an art gallery before this priceless and amazing classic piece of artwork, a masterpiece, and stands there rudely and loudly mocking it. Well, I don't see what the fuss is all about. Boy, I I certainly don't see anything impressive there. I could do better than that. And then they start to swing their arms trying to knock the masterpiece over. All as the, the stunned art enthusiasts in the gallery stand there gasping just amazed at what's happening, it it would be entirely right and good for the art curator to cover the artwork with a black veil, to remove it from before the obstinate blind person, and to escort that person out of the gallery. No one would take issue with that. Pharaoh from the book of Exodus is a helpful parallel here. Does scripture say that God hardened Pharaoh's heart? Yes, it does. It absolutely does. It was God's divine judgment against Pharaoh. Does scripture say Pharaoh hardened his own heart against God? Yes, it does. Says that clearly. It was Pharaoh's rebellion and unbelief against God. God's hardening of Pharaoh was a further hardening unto his divine and just judgment, which is right and good. Now, sometimes... The thought of election, I don't know if this pertains to you or not, but sometimes people, the thought of election leaves people thinking, yeah, but what about the people who really want to know the truth and be saved, but they can't? And and in that is a faulty assumption. There's a faulty assumption in that question that sinners want to know the truth and be saved. No sinner does. No sinner seeks God. We, I read that this morning in Romans 3. Apart from sovereign grace, all sinners suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. Now here in Matthew, Jesus expresses that the crowds, it's very interesting, that the crowds closed their own eyes lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and God would heal them. It's interesting, though, because in John 12, 39 and 40, which quotes the same prophecy of Isaiah, 
That expresses a different angle on this. Listen to what John says about this. Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Do you understand? You see those two things working together in Scripture. While the natural person clamps their eyes shut in order not to see, God blinds and hardens them not to see. Dr. Carson summarizes, Matthew has taken up these themes in greater detail because he wishes simultaneously to affirm that what is taking place in the ministry of Jesus is, on the one hand, the decreed will of God and the result of biblical prophecy, and on the other hand, a terrible rebellion, gross spiritual dullness, and chronic unbelief. And friends, this is not a new teaching of Jesus. This should not surprise us that he went there. Do you remember uh, from a few weeks ago what Jesus taught at the end of Matthew 11? We've heard this theological truth before. Jesus prayed this, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Knowledge and understanding of the gospel are God's choice, are God's generosity. Now, God justly condemns, but there's another side. The sovereign grace and blessing of God. God's sovereign grace and blessing in election. God's sovereign grace and blessing in election. Paul wrote to the Colossian church and used the phrase, the mystery hidden for ages and generations. And then wrote this, but now revealed to his saints, to his saints. To them, Paul says, referring to his saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. God reveals the mysteries of the gospel long hidden to his saints, to his elect God chooses to make the mysteries known. And when we read through the gospels, we recognize that the gospel writers are very hard on the Pharisees and scribes, very hard on the crowds, and rightfully so. They refused Christ, yet it was Christ. I find this very interesting, yet it was Christ who divinely upheld them as they rebelled against him. What marvelous grace. And even so, Though they wouldn't repent and come to him for rest, even though they accused him and plotted his destruction and eventually yelled, crucify him, he still preached to them gospel. Amazing. Jesus, the Son of God, the Christ, was there in the boat preaching and teaching and appealing to the evil generation which stood on the beach listening. And, and as he taught, there were his disciples there were his disciples listening and learning and trusting and growing as his grace and spirit sustained them. Verse 9, he who has ears, let him hear. Friends, God kindly gives some ears to hear. They hear, and, and in their hearing, it confirms God's mercy and grace for them. 
Later, after giving the parable of the sower to the great crowds, Jesus is with his 12 disciples who ask him about the parables. They, they didn't understand. And with patience, tenderness, and great wisdom, and with great skill, Jesus explained to them the parable. And he put the meaning of it into their hearts, into their minds. He gave them ears to hear. That's what Jesus does for his beloved. For he chose and loves them. Jesus said to his beloved disciples in verse 11, To you, to you, my beloved disciples, it has been given to know the secrets or, or the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. He was graciously unveiling for them astonishing things that were never seen before, never heard before. He was the Christ there in their presence, tenderly and graciously granting them divine favor. And so we ask, why them? Why them as opposed to others? And what we're left with in Scripture is not because of their worthiness, not because of anything in them or, or from them or done by them, but simply because of his compassionate and generous nature to give. Their knowledge was a gracious gift from their Savior and Lord. Jesus, he made absolutely sure that they understood. And then he encouraged his weak and his fragile and unworthy disciples with these words, for to the one who has, more will be given and he will have an abundance. Jesus was more and more opening their eyes and ears to see and hear. He was graciously expanding their knowledge and leading them into deeper worship. And he promised them that God would give them more. God would give them more. God would give to the point where they had an abundance. Oh, what marvelous grace. What lavish grace. And verse 16, when we come to it, it just launches off the page. It jumps off the page at us in verses 11 through 12. If you glance there, Jesus gave his disciples comfort and assurance. To you it has been given. To you who have, more will be given. And abundance will be given. What comfort, what marvelous grace, what assurance. And then he explained the sobering reality of God's sovereign and just judgment against those who refuse to come to him which helped his disciples understand God's sovereign decrees at work. But then Jesus gave them some immensely helpful and comforting words in verse 16. And I'd imagine that Jesus looked deeply within their eyes, looked right at his disciples with tenderness and with love and saying it in just the right way. He says, but blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Blessed, blessed. That word takes us somewhere. It takes us to God. God blessed them. They were blessed by God with eyes and ears to see and hear. Jesus was revealing the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven to them in order to do what? In order to bless them, to bless them with divine and endless blessings. At that moment, could they have boasted in anything other than sovereign grace? What were they going to say in that moment? Well, you know, we, we really did figure it out. I mean, we kind of are a little sharper than everybody else. Not in a million years. Their only boast was the sovereign mercy and grace of God who gave them understanding. The disciples are, are a true picture of what Paul wrote about in 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 31. 
But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, don't miss that, and because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, do you know how to finish it? Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This was their boast. This is our only boast, brothers and sisters. God chose me, the foolish, me, the weak, me, the low and despised, me, the unworthy. God united me to Christ. God gave Jesus to me as my wisdom, my righteousness, my sanctification, my redemption. I belong to him because he took me for his own To me, the unworthy, it has been graciously given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are my eyes to see. Blessed are my ears to hear by faith. I am blessed, not because of my worthiness. I am blessed, not because of my shrewdness. Not because I just figured it out. Not because of my choice. I am blessed because my merciful, compassionate, gracious, and loving heavenly Father has chosen me and blessed me in Christ. Is there something else to boast in? God's sovereign, unconditional, and free election is the foundation of your knowing, is the foundation of your security, the security of your knowing. Rejoice then, brothers and sisters. Rejoice in your knowing, for in your knowing you are divinely blessed. In verse 17, Jesus further blessed his disciples by saying, For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. The disciples, they really were uniquely blessed. The prophets and righteous people believed God's covenant gospel promises. They believed what God told them prior to Christ. But see, they only had Christ in types and shadows. They only had the gospel in types and shadows pointing forward to Christ, to the coming of Christ. And yet they longed to see the coming of the kingdom of heaven. And there the disciples were actually seeing the kingdom come. They were seeing it. Christ the king was in their midst bringing the kingdom of God, defeating Satan, reversing the curse of the fall. Beginning, he was beginning to make things right. Beginning to heal, to restore, to forgive, to save, to pardon, to justify. To overcome the effects of sin and guilt and misery in the world. To amass for himself a people for his own possession. One people united to himself. The son of David had come and he was revealing his royal power and supremacy in blessing his people with understanding. The king was at work. Lastly, The Lord sovereignly and graciously gives his people understanding of the gospel. Therefore, brothers and sisters, rejoice that your eyes and ears have been opened to see and hear and bear much fruit because you see and hear. Listen carefully. Our comfort in Christ, our comfort in Christ is the superstructure that is built on the foundation of God's unconditional election. 
our assurance of salvation, our assurance of perseverance rests on the firm foundation of God's unconditional election. God has opened your eyes, brothers and sisters. God has opened your ears, and God will keep them open. In fact, he promises to give you more and more and more until you have an abundance. Our consolation is knowing that we know because God has granted us knowledge. Election even secures our growth and secures our sanctification. In one sense, we do not see like the disciples saw. And in another sense, we do see as the disciples saw. In John 20, 29, Jesus said to Thomas after the resurrection, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And then in 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9, Peter tells the elect exiles of the dispersion, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Brothers and sisters, as 21st century Christians, we have not seen the nail marks on his hands. We've not seen the nail marks on his feet. We have not seen in person the crucified and resurrected Lord. And yet in another sense, we have seen him. We have. Paul told the Galatian Christians who were not there at the crucifixion event. They were not there, but this is what Paul told them. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. What does that mean? They weren't there. They didn't see it with their eyes. What was was Paul getting at? The Galatian believers saw Christ in and through the preaching of the gospel. They saw with the eyes of faith. They heard, they believed, they saw with the eyes of faith. Seeing amounts to hearing and believing. So, brothers and sisters, dear saints, dear beloved church of God, you are blessed. You are really, really blessed. For you see and hear because the Spirit gives you sight and sound by the preaching of the gospel. And he strengthens your spiritual senses by the use of the sacraments as you take them by faith. By God's sovereign grace and spirit, you see with the eyes of faith. By God's sovereign grace and power, you have the ears of faith and you hear with faith. And you are blessed and you are blessed now and you are blessed tomorrow and you will be blessed forever. So... I say take comfort in that, brothers and sisters. Take comfort in that. Let your knowing comfort you. Let your knowing assure you. And then bear much fruit because you see and hear. Let your seeing and hearing drive you for zealous good works for Christ, to do his law, to serve other people. Uh, Heidelberg 86 says that we do good works so that we ourselves may be assured of our faith by its fruits. That's very helpful. And that by our godly walk of life, we might win our neighbors for Christ. By our godly walk. So, oh, that our seeing and hearing would compel us to a godly walk, would compel us to strive to win our neighbors for Christ. 